0: Hello and welcome to paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers
1: behind the latest major headlines in science. My name is Charlie. And I'm James. Do you ever hear about science in the news and wonder, isn't there more to this story? Well, every Thursday, we go to the actual research papers behind these stories to beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media.
0: On today's episode, I'm bringing in a paper about the rise of F words. And I'm not just talking about swears, but any word that has an, an F or a V sound in it there's a new linguistic study that's actually causing quite a lot of controversy in the linguistics world where the authors are suggesting that our ability to make the sounds f and v are actually a result of the change in our diet to eating softer foods, which is kind of a crazy link to suggest. But
1: I have not read this paper, but Charlie, you had me at F-words, so I'm really curious to hear what the study was about, and I'll have plenty of questions for you.
0: Good. Well, hopefully we won't have to say too many of those f-words in the process we might get uh might get our podcast banned here fcc if you're listening don't uh james and i are both phd students and we read a lot of papers in the course of our own research and so on this podcast we thought we could share our love for science and our knack for being able to understand scientific papers with anyone else who wants to learn about these discoveries that affect all of us
1: we are the paper boys Before we get started, we wanted to say thanks for listening. Please, if you enjoy our podcast, follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at paperboyspod. So follow us, stay up to date on the latest episodes and content. And if you do enjoy this episode, we'd love it if you tell a friend and hit us up with any paper recommendations. Actually, if you're out there and can hear the sound of my voice, can you just reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram? It brings Charlie and myself a lot of satisfaction knowing that people are actually listening. And it's so cool for us to see how broad our listener base is across the world. It's just, it's really neat to actually see where everyone is grad students in different types of labs and artists, scientists. It's really cool. So hit us up if you're listening. It'd make our day.
0: Yeah. Shout out to Luke Siemens on Twitter, who was listening last week in a coffee shop in Toronto. I think, James, that explains why we see all of our analytics
1: hits from Canada. Luke Siemens creating a little following up there, I guess, yeah, thank you so much, Luke. If you're into art, check out Luke's stuff. It's really cool. um, you can find a link to his stuff on our Twitter page. All right, Charlie. So how'd you get so into the f word? Well, it all started when I was in elementary school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Young beginnings, <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I so I came across some headlines that didn't really grab me necessarily for like a scientific interest, but more just that there were so many headlines, like this one, I feel like broke kind of crazy news, it just was seemed to be everywhere, um, so I just kind of felt like I had to dive in, and then, through the process of reading this paper and reading these articles, I actually started to get really into it and be like, "Whoa, I don't know the field of linguistics, it's totally foreign to me, but." It's incredibly deep and there's so much debate going on and it's just it's a really cool field.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's one of those complex behaviors that, you know, we're using it right now to record this and talk and interact. So it feels like mundane, but there's so much behind it. Like, what is your life without language? Yeah,
0: and it's a cool thing because it's it's still like an ongoing process. Like the words that we are using, this is not the end of some Long line. We are in the middle of language changing. You know, like every 10 years, you know, you're using words that probably wouldn't have made sense to even yourself 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get that feeling when I listen to even like old recordings from the 50s. You know, like people from the 50s are everywhere. Like my parents are from the 50s. Yeah. And you listen to these recordings and you're like, they don't sound anything like people today, both in like the words that they're using, but also just the accents. Yeah. Well, I feel like any recording that I
0: hear from the 50s or like the 30s it's like President Eisenhower today signed the peace treaty that ended the final conflict. And like dirty they dog. talk like yeah, like really rapidly and like high pitched, but I'm sure that's just the audio quality and not the people's voices, but yeah, that's true. That's true. But still or maybe that was like this is a total side tandem maybe back then that was the what was cool for people to hear the way that now we have like the movie trailer voice that's like in a world <laughs> like that was their maybe movie maybe people guy. in 50 years like people in 50 years will think that that's how we all talked because they'll hear that on like
1: film reels and stuff wasn't that so weird in like 2018 how everyone would just talk in a deep voice with a lot of drama yeah. all the time yeah they must have smoked a lot of cigarettes back then <laughs> So uh, so what were some of the headlines that you saw then talking about this evolution in
0: language? So uh, one of the ones I saw was from National Geographic. The headline was, A change in our diets may have changed the way we speak. And then CNN says, Human speech sounds evolved because of our diet, study says. And then uh, this one I liked. is it, it was cheeky and kind of a little, nice little punchy way. Telegraph India says, how We Developed a Taste for F-Words. Yeah, huh, That's pretty clever. Which, well, yeah, it'll make a little more sense when we start talking about the
1: diet stuff, but, you know. Well done, Telegraph. So then, these were the popular news headlines, but what was the actual paper that came out? So the paper was published
0: in the journal Science, and it's called Human Sound Systems Are Shaped by Post-Neolithic Changes in Bite Configuration. Hmm. It's by... Damian Blasi and there's several other authors they're mostly linguists at the University of Zurich but okay this is crazy Blasi the first author he has five affiliations listed his affiliations are University of Zurich in Switzerland the Max Planck Institute in Germany Yale University in the USA and uh, Kazan Federal University in Russia I guess that's four affiliations but still like talk about international scholar there wow yeah those are like heavy hitters too Way to go, Mr. Blasey. This was actually published this week, March 15th, 2019. And like I said, it's in the journal Science. This was, And I think that's probably why this made such major news is that it's a very visible study.
1: So from the title, glean a couple things about this paper. Something about post-Neolithic changes and then bite configuration. What's bite configuration? So bite configuration
0: really just refers to like how your teeth overlap each other. So most of us today have an overbite, but I guess that wasn't always the case. But what's relevant about that to our speech is that humans kind of have these these biological attributes that actually allow us to speak, like to have the gift of speech. Like there are certain things like in the paper, they mentioned having a descended larynx and having a modern hyoid bone, which I guess is this bone that's sort of like beneath your jaw. And we have pretty good control of our breathing. And all these things are what have let humans develop language where other animals have not. And so they're suggesting in this paper that bite configuration is one of these biological factors that could actually
1: affect the way that we speak. So if I understood that correctly, you're saying that if I want to get my dog to speak, I just need to take him to the orthodontist. Yeah. Just, you got to just descend his larynx a bit. Add a Modernize bone. that hyoid bone. <laughs> Give him an overbite. Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, so if people all have basically the same physical ability to speak, how is it that we have so many different languages today? Such a breadth of language diversity. That is a great question. And that is the question
0: of linguistic study. Really? This is, again, like kind of what I learned from reading this paper. I gather that there are certain mechanisms that allow language to develop and to change over time and change geographically. And I think the main mechanism, at least the one they talk about in this paper, is that when humans are speaking to each other, they will naturally make errors. You know, like if you think of every sound that you make out of your mouth being a pass fail of trying to make the correct sound. And if anyone ever listened to the unedited episodes of Paperboys, you'd realize there's a lot of fails in those trials. (laughs) But imagine those are pass fails. Like each time you fail, if someone were to perceive that and it was very noticeable, then they might start picking up that same thing and doing that themselves. And so this is how things like accents develop, and this is how new words come out of older words, and eventually those errors sort of get folded into the language, and then that spreads uh, That spreads geographically. And so that's how languages oh. become diverse, and there's something like 7,000 different languages that exist today, just today alone.
1: That's so cool. Like, you know, just in Spain the Castilian accent for Spanish with a lisp that supposedly came about because there was a king who spoke with lisp so everyone around him did and now there's like you know how many millions of people who speak like that today yeah yeah that's a great example wow that's cool so over 7,000 languages that's uh that's nuts like every language seems like it's its own world yeah
0: totally and what's crazy is that across all these languages there are some sounds that are very common among all the languages like the i and a and u of english are things you'd find in almost every language but there's also really unique sounds that you would never really find in any language except for a few like in some languages in southern africa they have those clicking consonants like i couldn't even produce it you know but those are parts of their language well
1: so i have to ask since you know when you're sharing the popular news headlines you talked about some correlation with food so are there any other mechanisms affecting speech sounds that People are looking into? Yeah, that's the crux of this paper.
0: So, I guess in modern linguistic theory, the understanding is that this mechanism has been kind of a constant throughout time. And so, even though languages are always changing, the relative diversity of those languages and sort of the distribution of different sounds across all these different languages has been roughly constant, or at least like the variance between languages has been roughly constant because that mechanism is just a human thing that all humans would be subject to doing, making an error in your speech. But in 1985, there was a linguist named Charles Hockett, and he noticed that these certain types of sounds called labiodentals, which is, you know, like the F and the V sounds, like F and V, um, you don't really find those sounds in languages of hunter-gatherer societies. Really? Yeah. And so this was kind of this interesting little thing he noticed, and so he came up with this hypothesis that in a hunter-gatherer society your diet causes very heavy wear on your teeth and it ultimately results in you having what's known as an edge-to-edge bite configuration so that's like imagine trying to put your front your top teeth and your bottom teeth in the front like put them right on top of each other
1: Mm -hmm. it'd be easier if this was a video podcast to show you but a vodcast A vodcast, yeah. Although, if it was a vodcast, it'd be hard to pronounce that. Exactly, it would
0: be a very hard word to say if you had this edge-to-edge bite configuration. So, Mm. if you're listening right now, do that. Put your teeth together and try to say "video" or "video frigate." You know, some an F or a V sound. It's much harder to do. And so that was his hypothesis. Yeah, is that these languages wouldn't have F and V sounds because it's just harder for them to say them. But then people kind of like said, "No, that's a crazy hypothesis. You're stupid." I mean, they didn't say that but they they
1: rejected it yeah so i mean it seems like that hypothesis it seems like you could support that hypothesis or overturn it just based on like fossil record evidence is there any evidence like to go one way or the other based on that sorry i don't have a very broad knowledge of the fossil record for dental configuration
0: so that's actually exactly what this new
1: paper set out to do
0: so originally and I, I read this in the Nat Geo article. The authors of this paper set out to prove why Charles Hockett's hypothesis was wrong. They wanted to find evidence that said, no, byte configuration does not affect the way you speak. And they just kept finding
1: evidence to the contrary. And they were like, huh, there, there's got to be something going on here. Wow. I mean, that sounds like real scientific discovery. You know, unbiased by what you expect it should be, just following this trail of evidence like every scientist's dream, the story of objectively following the facts. Yeah, it's like the perfect scientific pursuit. So what types of evidence did they find to support Hockett's hypothesis? So
0: I guess the anthropological record recently has been showing that the primary mechanism... Well, let me back up. So when we're born, we all have an overbite. And we also have something called overjet. And throughout history, what the fossil record shows, like what you're pointing out, is that after adolescence, humans would lose their overbite and lose their overjet, and they would grow into this edge-to-edge configuration. And what this recent anthropological evidence is showing is that tooth wear is the main mechanism by which this happens. So as you're eating rough foods, you lose this hard tissue from your teeth, like, you know, enamel or something. Mm-hmm. And then uh, through whatever reason, I don't know why exactly, I'm not a, not a dentist, but uh, you compensate by losing your overbite. And so this has been kind of common for humans for a very long
1: time. Wow, that's fascinating that they're able to deduce that from the fossil record. So what is it exactly that causes tooth wear? It, it kind of made sense when you were talking about the hunter-gatherer societies, like imagine myself just chomping over here on some beef jerky and it's like, yeah, you really have to grind it out on your teeth. Or like eating sunflower seeds or something like that. But is it just these foods that are really hard to eat? Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much exactly
0: it. So when you're eating tough foods, it takes more bites and there's a lot more friction on your teeth. And it also takes more pressure on your jaw to chew the food. And so your mandible needs to sort of extend outwards in order to be able to exert that higher pressure. But if you're eating soft foods, you require fewer bites. There's less friction. Your mandible can be shorter shorter and that's sufficient to eat your foods and that's how you end up keeping your overbite. So, you know, today everyone in our society at least pretty much has an overbite. Like that's the normal, that's the normal healthy thing to have your teeth
1: be. Too much gogurt.
0: Yeah, it's but and it's it's exactly that reason though that we eat soft foods.
1: Interesting. Okay. Well, this is a side topic, but be interesting one to explore later on at the end of the episode of like where does this take us in the future with the sounds that we produce and the evolution of language, but... I know, I, I won't
0: even attempt to guess where we're headed, but...
1: For another episode. Yeah, if, we,
0: like, if we're all just eating Soylent from now on, what what's going to happen?
1: Yeah, every word's just going to have an F in it. Woo! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I guess getting back to Hockett then, uh, we talked a little bit about, like, what causes this where, and you were saying that the authors of this paper kept finding evidence in support of Hockett's hypothesis. What sort of things did they find or what sort of tests did they do to prove it or support
0: it, I should say? So the first thing they did was they wanted to test his hypothesis that it's harder to say these labiodental fricatives. Again, that's just the the F and the V kind of sound. And they did, they used this crazy looking software called Artisynth, like Artisynth, I don't know if that's RT as in artificial or RT as in articulation, but it's kind of a cool name. And they actually modeled all the muscular activity going on in your jaw and your lips and your face when you say these labiodental fricatives. Whoa, that's a pretty cool modeling project. Yeah. And there's some kind of cool looking videos on the, the paper website where they just show it. I mean, it's not that cool. It's just a weird looking face
1: making an F motion but it's like a video game kind of as long as it isn't that creepy robot from all those ai conferences that no, freaks no, no, me no. out
0: yeah it's not it's not that but maybe they could use this artisanth to make that
1: robot work better yeah and not sound so creepy that's a good question <laughs> what do you have to eat to change your bite to not sound creepy like a robot to not be a creep yeah <laughs> if you're listening out here and you're looking for a research idea just uh Mentioned Charlie and I in the acknowledgements. (laughs) Yeah. So what was the result of the simulation?
0: So what they found is that it is actually 29% easier to produce a labiodental fricative when you have overbite than it is when you have edge to edge. So Hockett's hypothesis is sort of, at least his guess that it's easier to
1: produce these sounds was correct. It's 29% easier, which is very specific. but, And that's just looking at like how much energy it takes to actually produce it. In terms of costliness,
0: yeah, they. I think they literally like integrate the work exerted by the facial muscles, and then they take you know, yeah, the total energy required. Wow! And they find that they find that not only is it on average, you know, it's twenty nine percent less, quote unquote, less costly to produce them when you have an overbite. It's also easier on almost every single muscle when you have an overbite to
1: say F and V. Hmm. How does it work for other sounds then? Like, did they test it for Ps or? g's or i don't know yeah they did so they wanted to
0: see if like maybe it's just harder to say anything when you have this edge-to-edge configuration mm-hmm. and so they tested it against um, what's called bilabial segments so that's like a p sound or a b or like a w things where you have to bring both your lips together to make the sound so the distinction here is like the labiodental fricatives is when you have to bring your front teeth against your bottom lip to make the sound so f- okay, okay v- like you can kind of imagine and then bilabial segments is bringing your two lips together so p b or w oh okay that makes sense and what they find is actually that producing these bilabial segments is easier when you have an edge to edge bite configuration it's actually like a lot easier to produce when you have the edge to edge so again you can kind of do it at home put your teeth edge to edge and go like p b p it's actually pretty easy right yeah not nearly as hard as saying the f's at least hmm so they kind of they did that quick test just to say like it is the labiodental fricatives specifically that are harder to do with an edge to edge bite configuration. Okay.
1: So it takes more energy to do this. But what's the connection to language? Like where does this extra effort come in in the evolution of a language?
0: Yeah, so what they suggest is that this difference in effort would just cause a higher frequency of making errors in trying to produce those sounds like if you're
1: just chewing your beef
0: jerky and you're like
1: i don't have time for this f letter
0: (laughs) yeah exactly it's too it's too hard (laughs) but it's more it's actually more like that if they don't have any really f words but suddenly you now have people who have this overbite configuration because it's easier they're more likely to produce the f sound by accident so think of like you don't say i'm going to eat there you say i'm gonna eat there gonna is way easier to say than going to we've just sort of naturally fallen into
1: saying gonna because it's it's easier you know hmm yeah i could see that like in 100 years gonna is just gonna be like you know it's super informal now but like maybe all scientific papers that we read when we're still doing paper boys 100 years from now we'll be using gonna
0: yeah and like going to might be like a completely anachronistic thing to ever even write you know gonna might just be the word yeah weird um, but so that that's like one example like but then if you imagine if you have a lot of words with a a puh sound but suddenly it becomes easier to make f sounds because you have an overbite maybe that puh eventually
1: kind of will just sort of grow into a f because it's a little easier to do you know that's super interesting so like i've wondered about this in other languages one that comes to mind is like in hebrew in the Hebrew alphabet, P and F are basically the same letter. They're just differentiated with a small dot, but it's like the same shape. And so there's like ambiguity sometimes as to whether it's a P or an F. So I wonder yeah, if this is actually it's a very his- historic language. that has been around for a very long time. So like I wonder if that arose sort of like you know this kind of like advent of human civilizations. Like people don't know whether to use a P or an F, or like they're introduced and they're just slight variations on each other.
0: Yeah, it's dude, it's awesome that you're bringing that up because and. I'm jumping ahead in the paper now, but later on, they analyze these Indo-European languages because they have a really good record of how those languages have evolved over time. And they trace these labiodental sounds back in history. And like the specific examples they give are like the Italian P became what our English F is now. So like in Italian, father is padre. Oh. You know, so padre went to father. Wow. Yeah. You can- but yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute.
1: Okay, Charlie. So I can understand from what you were saying how like if you don't have the overbite that may affect how often you you have speech errors for certain consonants that you're trying to say but how did they actually go then and correlate these changes in letters and sounds to diet over human history
0: yeah this was kind of cool they i guess there's some like global database of they called it phonological inventories And so they can look at this database and sample labiodental sounds from all these different languages across the world and I think throughout history as well. And just for some context, I think of all the languages they sampled, they found about 49% of languages have an F sound. Only 37% have a V sound. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like half of all languages do not have an F sound in them. Wow. But that just seems so common and normal to me. But... I don't know, just kind of puts things into perspective as our favorite podcast host would say.
1: <laughs> just really puts it into perspective for you,
0: yeah, and the types of sounds they're looking for are these different labio there's different types of labiodentals. there's the fricative which we've been talking about there's the affricate, which I'll play a, a sample of right here
1: puh, uh, puh, puh, puh.
0: yeah, yeah, the voice is weird. another type is the the nasal n. And I thought that this was like nasal as in like when you say walking, like the ng, but it's actually not because that's not a labiodental. There, it's a different thing that you'll let's just listen to the clip and you'll hear. Ma a uh, ma.
1: Hmm. I'm just scrolling down. Like symphony.
0: Oh. In English. Okay, that's a good example. Symphony. I like that. And then there's something called a tap. Ba, ah, ba, ba, ah, ba.
1: Whoa, that's strange.
0: Yeah, the the tap or I think they also call it flap is pretty crazy. It doesn't look like we have that in English. Yeah, the flap sounds crazy. It almost sounds like someone, you know, smacking their mouth while they're trying to make a sound. Yeah. And then there's the approximant. Wow. 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 Vine. Yeah, so you can so you can hear from these different things like some of them sound familiar and some of them don't. So it turns out only like two percent of languages have that affricate, the the puff the puff sound, and less than one percent of all languages have the nasal and the tap and the approximate, Those last three that we just heard, and so, which is makes sense. Those ones sounded really foreign to you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So less than one percent of languages have
1: those. That's so weird. Sounds are like one of those things where you know if you're not exposed to them when you're young and like there's some golden age apparently with your brain up to age 12 to 15 when you can actually like learn them at a native level and then after that it's like it just sounds like weird sounds so you don't see them as these tones and uh i think of it like you know if you had to describe to someone what salt tastes like you're like "Uh, sorry man (laughs) good luck that's a great analogy yeah i'll never be able to learn east Chadic languages apparently says Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're too old now.
0: James. <laughs> so anyway, they sampled these different types of labiodental sounds across all these languages. And then they produced a regression model. So getting back now to the, the diet stuff. They produced a regression model that included the subsistence type. Of all the different societies that have these different languages. So the subsistence type just means like, oh, you're a hunter-gatherer society, or you're agricultural, or you have some sort of major food processing. What was the result of the regression model? Interestingly, they found that the hunter-gatherer societies only have about twenty-seven percent the number of labiodentals that the food production societies had.
1: Wow. That's way less.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that and so that's like a just a quick and So that's just, like, a really good indication right off the bat that, like, yeah, there's a correlation here. And they did a couple of other tests, like, they controlled for all these other variables to make sure that that was actually a correlation and not just some, like, weird freak thing that
1: could have just, like, fallen out. You were going to say quick and dirty and then you're like, that was actually a huge research project with tons of minutia.
0: yes exactly that was probably like the reason they needed all these different universities involved
1: there was nothing quick and there was nothing dirty no <laughs> yeah long and clean yep wow well that's that's really fascinating in reading the paper did you find any specific examples that they gave that really illustrated this
0: yeah. So they did this like sort of large, broad sampling thing to find that correlation. But then they also did kind of like a deep dive into a couple different languages. They looked specifically at native languages of Greenland and some areas of Southern Africa and Australia. So like like Inuits in Greenland or the Aboriginal people in Australia, specifically because these groups have very heavy tooth wear and they have this edge-to-edge bite configuration. And also they're just very well-documented societies and languages. And it turns out that none of these languages have any sort of reliable labiodentals in them. There, I think a couple of them have some words that they've borrowed from European contact that do have labiodentals, but all the words that they identified, all the sounds they identified that come from the original languages, there are no labiodentals present. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Do you want to hear what um, this Greenlandic language sounds like? Yep. So it's really cool. This is actually a language that is like still spoken today. I think that Greenlandic students learn this language and there's only like 50,000 people or something that speak it. And within Greenland, there's four different dialects of this language that are apparently almost unintelligible to each other. Like they're on the verge of being different
1: languages altogether. Wow, that's so cool. I mean, like each of these has what, like twelve thousand people speaking it, and they're just like night and day. Yeah, yeah. So, uh,
0: here, here is what it sounds like. I'll just play one sentence. <laughs>
1: I just want to keep hearing and speak. It's so strange. It's not strange. It's just like, yeah, it's so different from what I'm used to. Um, It's a kind of a very hard sounding language, right? I couldn't even mimic the sounds if I listened to that video a hundred times. Yeah. And like, again, I'm no expert, but it sounded like
0: there were labiodentals in there, but maybe it's just my inability to understand this very foreign sounding language that's confusing these sounds. But
1: yeah, I, I'm going to leave that one to the linguists.
0: Yeah, in case we get any hate mail saying, oh, that totally had many labiodental fricatives,
1: Charlie. All that deeply linguistic hate mail that we get.
0: Yeah, they'll have a couple choice F words of their own.
1: Why don't you labial fricative this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Go fricative yourself, man.
1: Wow. Wait, so earlier you mentioned the thing about Italian, like padre and father. Uh, what were they saying in the rest of the paper about that? Yeah. So this was kind of the,
0: the last little wrapping up point they were making is they looked at the development of labiodental sounds in languages throughout history to see if they could correlate it with the rise of agriculture and food processing. So they've sort of found there is a correlation that these societies that don't have food processing also don't really have labiodental fricatives. But now they need to see, like, is that just a coincidence or throughout history, is there is there a link there? And so they looked at, like I mentioned, these Indo-European language family because it's a very large sample of languages. There's tons of languages throughout that whole region of the world. And the evolution of them is very well understood because there's a great historical record. And they have lots of evidence and lots of anthropological evidence from those regions. And so they just looked back through like thousands of years at all of this different stuff. And what they found is that the archaeological record shows... That this overbite started coming about, you know, anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 years ago, depending on which specific part of that region. And then this is where they start doing that, the tracing of the words back in time, like I was mentioning before. So they find a couple of, like, sets of types of sounds that you can speak and go through the history. So, for example, they go from father, they trace it back to, you know, padre and, and that type of root. There's, you know, a couple other sets like the Italian V sound, like mm-hmm. Veneri. I probably butchered that pronunciation uh eventually became the English K sound come so like the word venere, venere in Italian means come in English and so that V became a C weird so they sort of trace they sort of
1: trace those changes back in history that's really cool that's really cool you can see this evolution in modern languages you know it just re- reinforces that point you were talking about earlier like we are still living in this evolution yeah yeah so what was the result of tracing these
0: changes in the languages so they ended up finding that labiodental sounds are much less likely as you keep going further and further back in time. Hmm. So like, if you start from a given modern labiodental sound, like a f or a v, they find that of all the words that have that, there's only a 3% chance that the original root word started off as a labiodental. So only wow. 3% of the labiodental words today originally started that way. The other 97% of labiodentals came from different sounds before.
1: That's nuts, especially when you say it like that. 97% of them came from different sounds.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so then because they can trace these back and they know when those changes happened, they end up finding that the massive surge in probability of a labiodental coming into a language starts around 4,000 years ago, which is like right around when they found this window of time
1: for the soft foods. Interesting. I wonder if... You know, like you were saying earlier, they found that it's harder to say these labiodental consonants if you're in a hunter-gatherer society or like, you know, going back in time. There are very few that originally started like that. And I wonder if because, it, you know, it's harder to say, they're more prone to error, that you allocate these sounds to words that are really important that you're not going to screw up, like when you're chewing on your beef jerky or whatever it is. You know, like it's only really important things that you associate with the sound.
0: Yeah, that that's actually an interesting point. Like, you think of you know maybe like back in those societies, all the really kind of like high-minded words that were like you'd only ever really see in writing, and no one would ever actually use. Like, maybe those <laughs> yeah, are the, the f words, you know?
1: The ubiquitous, non-ubiquitous f words.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe again, not a linguist. I wish that I, I kind of
1: wish that I was now that I'm reading this. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Well, that's that's really cool. Fascinating article. Was there any other discussion at the end of the paper or? Did it bring up any other thoughts for you? Yeah, I mean, the authors are very careful to say that this is not
0: definitive and this is just, it's sort of like, it's a theory with a lot of evidence supporting it, but this by no means explains any sort of global phenomena. You know, they say like, we only looked at the Indo-European region and we only looked through this certain history. I think they're just really trying to avoid controversy, which apparently they did not avoid from reading some of these news articles. Really? Like, so people were pretty upset about this? I don't know if upset is the right word, but there are definitely, it seems like there's sort of a split in the linguistic community over this. So one of the lines near the end of this paper is, quote, we can no longer take for granted that the diversity of speech has remained stable since the emergence of homo sapiens. And I think that that communicates, you know, we're talking about all this kind of like, you know, funny F word stuff or whatever. But I think that that line really communicates the impact of this hypothesis. Or the implication of this hypothesis. I mean, it could completely turn linguistic theory on its head. Again, I'm not in the field, so maybe maybe I'm exaggerating. But based on the reactions, it sounds it seems kind of that way.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I don't have a. I wish I had a deeper understanding of this. So, if you are listening and you're into linguistics, uh, definitely let us know where you stand on this.
0: Yeah, it's the <laughs> dividing issue of our time. But, you know, so, like, going back to some of these news articles, the National Geographic one is amazing, by the way. We'll post that on our website, and everyone listening to this, if you're, if you're interested in the paper, read the National Geographic article because it's, like, a perfect—gives you everything. So in that article, there's a quote from Blasi, the first author. I hope our study will trigger a wider discussion on the fact that at least some aspects of language and speech, and I insist some— need to be treated as we treat other complex human behaviors, laying between biology and culture. So he's saying, like, this is a very big change, but also I'm just suggesting there's just some aspects that that I'm suggesting this change for. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. It's sort of like that man-made debate of even using the term man-made, like as if something man-made is not natural, like we're apart from this natural world and yeah I guess it's like a sub classification like that's not what people are really saying but you can sort of have this mentality of like we're separate from biology but we're not like we're just cells
0: yeah it's it's a paradigm shift basically Mm -hmm. um so kind of you know just highlighting a little bit of the, the controversy so tecumseh fitch who is an expert on bioacoustics at the university of vienna not involved in the work said uh, this is probably the most convincing study yet showing how biological constraints on language change could themselves change over time due to cultural changes. So that's sort of in support of this, but then I guess against this is um, now just quoting the article. Many linguists have defaulted to skepticism out of a broader concern about tracing differences in languages back to differences in biology, a line of thinking within the field that has led to ethnocentrism or worse.
1: Ooh. That's pretty critical,
0: yeah, so it seems like the potential controversy is that there could be some maybe racist implications that people might be able to draw from this sort of work i'm not I'm not sure, and I don't want to even really speculate on what what that is, and they didn't really have a good quote from anyone that suggested that, but that seems to be the fear among some linguists,
1: hmm, like you discriminate against people based on language like language informing some sort of evolutionary thing i don't know i mean i just think the science behind it is fascinating obviously language has evolved over time and across continents like yeah who knows but yeah, there, yeah
0: there's another is. rebuttal too, just on the science aspect not the not the implications aspect mm-hmm. there's a linguist from university of southern california khalil iskarus says, if extremely small amounts of effort make a difference between whether you're likely to have a speech sound or not, you'd predict, for instance, that no language should have clicks. And clicks not only exist, they've spread into many languages that didn't have them. These are extremely effortful, but it doesn't matter. There are cultural forces that decided that clicks would spread. So that's kind of like a rebuttal to this argument, saying like, well, if it's easier to say fricatives, then why isn't everything that we say really easy to say?
1: Yeah. But it seems like the author was talking about that, like, it's not just effort, but maybe in many cases, effort plays a role, but not always. And there's exceptions, like... Right. They were very careful to say that. And I feel like
0: I also saw a criticism somewhere in in one of the early articles that I read, and I I wasn't able to pull it back up, but that was criticizing the paper for not looking at modern hunter-gatherer societies, and then I read the paper, and it was all about modern hunter-gatherer societies. So I, I don't know where that criticism comes from.
1: Weird, yeah. It sounds like they just maybe didn't read the paper.
0: <laughs> like, didn't read the paper closely or, or whatever. But Do your homework, um, peeps. Yeah, and there was a couple news stories that irked me a bit, mostly just headline-wise. The richest said, humans weren't able to produce F and V sounds before the development of farming, which is just a false headline. yeah we we've always been able to produce these sounds we just didn't we we just our languages didn't usually have them yeah Hmm. and and within the article they say stuff like it is said that our jaws changed to an overbite structure making it much easier to pronounce the sounds but that's again that's kind of misinformation like the distinguishing factor is that our jaws didn't change post adolescence because the overbite is the natural configuration so to say that like our jaws changed over time to have an
1: overbite is actually is actually false. Oh yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, that just seems like a bad headline too.
0: Yeah, and there's another one from Info Sir Hoy. and you know, I sometimes I hate picking on like very small news websites, but also like if I'm finding this article online, other people are finding it too. Like that's kind of the the beauty and the beast about the internet is that you might get your news from a place like Info Surhoy which says Surprising, your food regimen decides how you'll converse, claims new analysis. I mean, that's just blatantly wrong. Like that's suggesting like what you are eating today determines the way that you have conversations, which would be a really cool study
1: to do. But it's not even not even close. Yeah, to what like this the time is scale like. is wrong. Like everything about it is just wrong. That's interesting. That I mean, that was a good good find for a bad headline. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know page two of the Google News results, but wow you know you got to you got to page two how many (laughs) people actually go to page two (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway uh well thanks charlie that was really fascinating research
0: yeah i'm glad that i got to bring it in this was like i said i started reading this paper and was kind of like oh this this will be a little interesting and by the end i was totally sucked in like i'm very fascinated by linguistic study now so i'm glad i'm glad i got a chance to read this and i'm glad that
1: you brought it in for the podcast (laughs) good thanks if you enjoyed this episode please share on social media. As we mentioned before, we're on Twitter and Instagram at paperboyspod. You can also email us any comments or suggestions that you have. We also love paper recommendations. paperboyspod at
0: gmail.com If you want to read this paper or find some of those news articles or even the videos that we played throughout this, check out our website, paperboyspodcast.com. And we also have a link to some new merch that we're selling on that site. We've got t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and tote bags. Pretty much anything you could put a Paperboy's logo on, you could probably get there. They look really awesome, by the way. Uh, a couple, We've seen a couple people's shirts that came in the mail, and they're pretty cool. So definitely check it out. That link
1: is on our website. Again, paperboyspodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. Join us next week for another exciting edition of Paperboy's. Thanks for listening.